Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Today we take a little bit of a jaunt into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So get a cup of coffee, put on your headphones, close your eyes, and join me as I think with my mouth open. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Ah, glory. I do love the Apostles' Creed. I have a, a philosophy about memorization. And I use this with uh, Bible, with Scripture, and I use this with music. Um, I tell my students, don't memorize anything. Use it as often as you can. And in using it often, you find yourself remembering it in a much more long-term sense of the word. Um, you know, memorization for me was like um, memorizing answers for a test the night before. You know, memorizing material for a test. And as soon as the test is over, the material goes out goes out of your head and you don't remember it anymore. I don't remember half of what I learned. A third of what I learned. Probably less than that in high school or college. But the things that I use on a regular basis, I remember. So I tell my students, don't memorize the circle of fifths. Use the circle of fifths. Every chance you get, use it. Have a diagram ready. Use it. Refer to it. Eventually, you just end up remembering it. And that's the same way it is with Scripture. That's why uh, in Psalms 1, where it talks about, blessed is the man who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night. The word for meditate means to, to talk aloud to yourself about something. It means to talk to yourself. Bring it into your conscious thought for the day. Spend time in it. Read it. Think about it. Talk about it. The Scripture will bury itself deeper into you that way rather than just set out to memorize it and then when you memorize this go on to the next thing memorize that go on to the next thing memorize that find a way to connect with the scripture to meditate on it apply it to your life that's the basis of what we're doing here in coffee the bible and page you're seeing me go through that process and in the process i'm finding that i'm remembering much more of the scripture if not the exact words many times the application and the thought behind each of the scriptures that I'm reading how it applies to me I can give you a one sentence overview of the New Testament so far <laughs> and it's found in this love God with all your heart soul and mind and love your neighbors yourself everything in the New Testament revolves around that core that's like the hub of the Christian wheel love God Love your neighbor. And 
everything that Paul has written, everything that Peter wrote, everything that John wrote that we've studied so far circles around that truth. The truth of the fact that a Christian, if you are truly a Christian, your life is outwardly focused. The needs of others supersede your own. You sacrifice your needs and wants in order to meet the needs and wants of those around you. That's loving your neighbor. And Paul is going to go into that again today. He's going to give us another aspect of what that looks like. So let's get started. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read it. Okay, let me scroll down. Chapter 3, chapter 4. Here we go. Chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. All right. When you see the word for in starting a sentence, it's connecting you to a previous thought. When you see the word for or therefore, it kind of means because. So what was the previous thought? Well, the previous thought was, well, let's go up and take a look. At the end of chapter 4, he says, Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. He's talking about outwardly we waste away. In other words, the physical wasting away, the struggle of living in a world that is basically our enemy. Because of that, though we're outwardly wasting away, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that's the wasting away part, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, currently, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. All right, he's alluding to Adam and Eve in the garden, I think. Remember, they were naked. They were not ashamed. Sin was introduced. Um, they participated in sin and all of a sudden they realized they were naked and they were ashamed and they clothed themselves with leaves. And then God came along and clothed them with animal skins. They were ashamed. And those of us believers who are alive now in our flesh, there is a sense of shame in the fact that we know we know what we're like. Now, if you're truly a believer and you're focusing on others and putting others' needs, others' needs ahead of you, of your own, then people around you will see somebody who is godly, Christ-like. But you and I, we know the truth, don't we? We know the truth that inside there dwelleth no good thing apart from the Spirit of Christ. We know what we're really like. And there's a shame involved in that. There is. Um, if people really knew me, my shame would be public. Now, I'm not hiding any super crime, like I'm not a mass murderer or anything like that. But I know how much I fall short 
of the glory of God. Paul's covered that in Romans, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no way in me, in and of myself, that I can do anything that's good enough to be accepted by God. And I know that. And the enemy in my soul continually tries to draw me out and move against God and his kingdom and his ways. That's a struggle. And there's not a Christian alive who isn't a step away from public humiliation if they were to give in to the sinful nature that it dwells within them. We struggle against that. We fight against that. We groan and we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed. Ah, Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose, in other words, the purpose being that which is mortal being swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, God has given believers the Spirit as a pledge of that coming transformation, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The Greek word lying behind this paraphrase meant either a pledge or a guarantee, differing in kind from the final payment, but rendering it obligatory. In other words, God is assuring us that there will be a day when we will be released from the bondage of this flesh and the sin that we so precariously live next to in our life. There's going to come a day when that's going to be all gone. And he put the Holy Spirit in our life as a guarantee that that one day will be gone. It's not like it's a, he's given us something that we can bargain with him on. It's not a bargaining chip. Salvation is totally a grace gift from God. But he deposited the Holy Spirit in us so that we would have a taste of what it would one day be like when sin no longer has any mastery in our lives. Therefore, because of that deposit, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. We're painfully aware of that because we live by faith, not by sight. Faith in the sense that uh, the writer Hebrew says, faith is the evidence of things not seen. In other words, we haven't seen this glory yet. We get a taste of it, but we live by faith, looking forward to the day when this body will be redeemed. Right now it's not. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. This thing about being at home with the Lord, this isn't just a physical location, being at home with the Lord. It's not about, we are confident, I say, and prefer to be away from the body and be physically where Jesus is physically. But it also carries with it a sense of um, 
sense of the peace and safety that comes from being at home. It's not just being in a physical location. Perhaps the closest thing I can equate this to would be when I was growing up in Southeast Alaska, um, we went out in boats a lot. That was just part of the lifestyle. It was on an island. So we would go fishing, we'd go camping. We would be out in boats a lot. Well, Baranoff Island, where I lived, is right on the edge of the Gulf of Alaska. And the Gulf of Alaska can be very, very treacherous. And the waters can be very, very treacherous. And I remember one particular time we're coming back from a place called Hayward Strait. We had to cross a stretch of open water and it was, it was ugly. Uh, I don't know. I guess there were eight to 10 foot swells uh, and the there was a wind that was just chopping the top of those waves off. And we were in an 18 foot uh, Rhinel deep V boat. And it was very, very frightening. Very frightening for this little boy. And I was very afraid. I was afraid for my life. Now, I don't know if we were in danger of death. My dad was driving the boat and I felt secure in the fact that he knew what he was doing. But it didn't take away from the fact that I was very, very afraid. Isn't that like a metaphor of our life with Jesus? Even though we know Jesus is the pilot... That doesn't take away from the fear of the waves around us, does it? And I remember the sense when we finally reached home, pulled into the harbor at Thompson Harbor. That's where our boat was would be docked. And we pull up to the dock and tie our boat off. And I get out on the dock, that solid, secure, non-heaving dock. The, it was like, it was all I could do to just not fall down on my hands and knees and kiss the, the docks because I was so glad to be home. There was a sense of relief and peace that came with being at home. Dad was with me the whole time. Dad got us safely through the storm. It did not stop me from being scared of that storm. I wish my little brother, Pat, were on this uh, were on this live Facebook thing, but he's out on the West Coast, and this is a little bit early for him, but he would corroborate some of the frightening times that we had. But our dad always brought us home. That, isn't that kind of like Jesus and us? Jesus always does bring us home, but that doesn't negate the fear and the terror of the moment. So when he says, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, he's not only talking about being physically in the place where Jesus is. He's also talking about that time that will come when Paul will have to will be able to quit fighting the sin and the world and the anger and the rage that surrounds him in, in his ministry. Hmm. Four, he says, uh, it may, so we make it our goal, because of this, we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, good or bad. Now there's implied in there something that I, I'm not sure I have the academic qualifications to really get into. But there is room for the fear of the Lord. I don't believe I can lose my salvation. 
But there's still room for a healthy fear of the Lord here because God is a just God. My dad never struck us while we were growing up. Uh, I think if he had, he could have killed us. He was a very strong man. He's an ex-professional athlete, big man, strong man. But he never struck us. But there was always the hint that that's not outside the realm of possibility were we to do something so egregious as to require that. He never hit us. But that did not preclude us having a healthy fear. And it's not a terror, but it's a healthy fear and respect of what my dad could accomplish in that arena if he wanted to. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, I'll come back to that in a second, as some say, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. All right, when he talks about being out of his mind, they, his enemies would accuse Paul sometimes of being out of his mind because maybe they saw him in his private worship times where he would surrender himself to God. You remember in 1 Corinthians, it says he, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 says, I'm glad I speak in tongues more than all of you. Well, the time that Paul would allow that to happen, would have that happen, would be in his private worship time. He said, I don't want to do it in public. I do it in my private prayer time. So if they observe Paul during his private prayer time, praying in tongues and bowing and worshiping before God, they would think he was out of his mind. True worship, and I hope you hear this, true worship is not a spectator sport. True worship sometimes looks goofy to those who are unprepared to look at it. It looks silly. It looks, sometimes it looks just a little bit too weird. But someone who's totally lost in worship before God doesn't care what they look like and sometimes it just looks silly so if we are out of our mind as in private worship time as some say it's for God that's for God if we are in our right mind in a, in, our, in other words in acting morally and appropriately as representatives of a new life this new life it's for you if I'm out of my mind it's for God if I'm in my right mind, acting morally and appropriately, it's for you. I have this little thing here that I pulled down from the commentary. Very great thoughts. The new things that have happened in Christ, however, are not private spiritual experiences, but a new way of life that derives from the reorientation described in chapter 5. Becoming a new creation does not refer to becoming a new kind of super spiritual human being but to becoming like Christ. The contours of, this is important, the contours of this new creation that we become part of are moral, not ecstatic. In other words, morals in, as in how you behave. The motivations behind how you behave and what you do. 
the new creation of a people who live for Christ by living for others is the beginning of the restoration of God's people. Let me read that again. The new creation of a people who live for Christ by living for others is the beginning of the restoration of God's people under the new covenant. Hence, whatever the new things are in verse 17, they must certainly include a new life of growing obedience to God brought about by the Spirit. As the second Adam, Jesus, reflecting the image of God, Christ brings his followers back to the glory associated with Adam before his fall and disobedience. Thus, for Paul, the real evidence of the glory of the new creation is not spiritual ecstasy. In other words, the weirdness that worship looks like sometimes. But moral transformation, the transformation of your character, the transformation of your, the way you live your life, the transformation of a life moving from selfishness to selflessness. Good stuff. Because Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Highlighted that because, again, Paul's circling the wagons around that commandment of Je- the two commandments that Jesus gave. Love God, love your neighbor. Those who no longer live themselves are loving their neighbor. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. It was now Paul's custom to view others, not in terms of nationality, but in terms of spiritual status. The Jew-Gentile division, which has been a very big deal in Corinth and throughout all of Paul's ministry and everywhere he's preached, the Jew-Gentile division is less important to him than the Christian unbeliever distinction. Though we once regarded Christ this way as a blasphemer and troublemaker, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. If you are in Christ... There is a way that you are expected to behave. And you are expected to behave in such a way that the Jewish-Gentile division is gone. If you are in Christ, your focus is on is an outward focus, not an inward focus. Religions back then, the temples, the, the cults, it was all about you doing something for you, changing you, and you becoming... You know, it sounds so much like like we hear preached in some pulpits today and with uh, positive mental attitude speakers, improving yourself, you making yourself a better you. That's inward focus. Paul is saying, if you're in Christ... You're part of a new creation. That that old way is gone. The new way is here. And what is that new way? Outward focus. You no longer live for yourselves. Up here in verse 15. All this is from God, Paul says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he's not talking just about Paul himself. He's including them in it. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is the establishment or restoration of loving fellowship after estrangement, after time away. For Christians, reconciliation to God is renewed each day. Now, this doesn't mean you're saved, not saved, saved, not saved, saved, not saved. Uh, in a marriage, sometimes there's estrangement, separation. Now, the world's solution for that is divorce. But sometimes this estrangement, they find a way through and they come back together as husband and wife. They were never divorced. They were apart. That's us and God. Sometimes we're apart from him as believers. Sometimes we've walked away from him as believers. But there's always reconciliation between us and God. This isn't just reconciliation in the sense that those who were permanently estranged from God, as in unbelievers, are reconciled back to him. That's contained in this. But there's also a daily reconciliation that we believers participate in. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verse in 1 John, it's not just to unbelievers. It's to believers. John was writing to believers. And he told these believers that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In uh, Revelation it says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone lets me in, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. Yes, anyone includes anyone, unbelievers and believers. And it's certainly true that if an unbeliever opens the door to Christ, Christ will come in with them and they'll have fellowship. But that verse is also written to a church in Asia Minor. It's written to a, a congregation of believers. And he's telling these believers, look, I stand. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Just because you're a Christian and you bowed your knee to him one time doesn't mean that that's the only time you should bow your knee to him. There's not a day that goes by when I don't say these words, Lord, have mercy. And I'm praying that for myself. Lord, have mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Say what you will, my Protestant friends, against our Catholic brethren. I don't agree with some, some of the Catholic theology, but I do honor them as the church that kept the church moving forward after the fall of the Roman Empire and kept much of the doctrinal things safe that we enjoy today. We are descended, we Protestants are descended from that. 
And there are certain parts of the Catholic worship liturgy that I find particularly alluring. The ordinary of the Mass. It starts off with the Kyrie. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. It's a prayer of repentance. And the nice thing about the Catholic Mass is they do that all the time. Every time they have Mass, in, in the ordinary of the Mass is recited, people are hearing or singing, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, asking God for forgiveness. Why? Because I am clothed in a body of death, and I groan with Paul. I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to deal with this nonsense anymore. But while I'm here, I have to deal with it. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 21, that's looking into the future. But it's also pointing to the now in the sense that we are ambassadors and representatives. First Peter put it very well. We are foreigners in a foreign nation. We are, we are citizens of another nation, the kingdom of God. We don't belong here. And this kingdom really doesn't want us here. So we're living in a hostile environment. And our bodies fail us. Our our flesh fails us. We need mercy every day. So every day, I seek reconciliation. Not in order to be saved again, but just to clear the pathway between God and myself. Sin clouds vision. Sin clouds the mind. And when I'm involved in sin, it inevitably clouds my observation of God. It clouds my ability to see what God is doing in my life. Every day, I say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Reconciliation is the establishment or restoration of a loving fellowship after estrangement. Sin estranges. Reconciliation restores. There's lots here, and there's more to come. God bless Paul. This is probably, this is, you know, I say this every time. This is the most powerful letter I've ever read of Paul's. Until the next one, I suppose. All right. Well, this is Mr. G, folks. I am out of here. Have a glorious day. Here's my coffee. We are out of here. Bye-bye. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner.